Hey, it's Antoinette and welcome to another episode of the Hormone Heartbeat Podcast. Today's episode in my fertility series is all about knowing your options when it comes to fertility treatments. And my guest, Maida, shares her journey to motherhood using reproductive technologies, including third-party reproduction. Maida helps family-focused, responsible, and relationship-driven women and couples facing infertility so that they can make thoughtful, confident, and informed decisions about how to best build their families without any anxiety, fear, misinformation, judgment, rejection, or worry about how their choices will impact their future child and family. I cannot wait to share our interview with all of you today. Welcome to the Hormone Heartbeat Podcast, a podcast about female empowerment through menstrual cycle health, the true heartbeat of your hormone status. With each episode, we'll explore the foundations of hormone health with science, soulful and heartfelt conversations, a dash of sass and feminine pizzazz. Our dream is to arm you with exactly what you need to be an unstoppable female force, ready to achieve all that your heart desires and embrace your inner goddess. And here's your host, naturopathic doctor, birth doula, fertility awareness educator, hormone enthusiast, and lover of pretty things, Antoinette Falco. Welcome, Maida. It's so great to have you on today's episode. I can't wait to hear you share your story and give some of our, our listeners some of the really amazing pieces of wisdom that you have to share with the fertility world. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Let's just jump in with getting you to describe a little bit about your personal fertility journey and what led you to the birth of your two beautiful twin girls? Yeah. So I would say that my husband and I were lucky in that we discovered that we would have a challenge getting pregnant on our own fairly quickly in our journey. So my husband was diagnosed with low testosterone. If you're not familiar with that, before they put you on any medication for that, they do a sperm analysis um, because some of the medications used can impact sperm count and quality. And unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, um, the results of that test were that he had a low sperm count and low motility. And so we knew basically right away that we were going to need some help. So we started interuterine insemination, so IUI, fairly mm -hmm. quickly after that. We did four rounds of IUI, unmedicated at first for the first two rounds, and then medicated um, for the second two, and none of those resulted in a pregnancy. And so we were referred on to a reproductive endocrinologist. And so it was during that first visit that we discovered that my AMH levels were incredibly low for my age. So I was 31 at the time. And they immediately recommended IVF because they said with the sperm issue and with your egg quality issue, we're, we're pretty much, we got to go IVF. So explain for our listeners the connection between having a low AMH and what that meant for your fertility or maybe what your doctors had communicated that was going to mean about the process. Yeah. So, you know, I think there's a lot of conversation out there around AMH levels and whether or not they are actually a predictor, right, of egg quality, because I think AMH levels can change and all that stuff. And I am not by no means an expert in that area. But for me, what the doctor said was my AMH levels were so low that they felt that um, when I would ovulate, if I did release any um, eggs on my own, that they wouldn't be high quality. And so we needed to go in and get as many eggs as we possibly could through IVF stimulation to try to get um, 
a few that would be able to be fertilized to, to become an embryo. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm so great. I'm so happy that you said that because there is a lot of information around AMH and it can change. And the one thing that I hear a lot of fertility doctors say that it's your indicator about whether IVF is going to be successful for you or the chances of it as as much as they could say that, right? Everything <laughs> is such a numbers game in totally. the fertility space. Yeah. And I wanted to jump back even to what you said about the low, your husband having low testosterone and mm-hmm. then having low sperm parameters. Was there anything that was encouraged or that you guys did to help with that? Or like what led you to the low t- testosterone and then going into an IUI? Yeah. So he was put on Clomid actually okay. um, for to treat the low testosterone. And we ended up doing IUI so that he could do a a donation and then they could wash the sperm right and get as many concentrated as we could. One of the things that we did, I think it was on our last IUI attempt, is he actually did two samples that they then combined to try to up the number of sperm that were that we were using in the the vial that we were using for the IUI to try to up our chances of it working but at the time we also didn't think that there was anything wrong with me because mm. i was ovulating like i was supposed to like my lining was right like all my numbers were right like but i was we were doing the IUIs through our through my OB's office and to be honest looking back at that i wish we had maybe gone on to an RE earlier than we did because we didn't know, Mm -hmm. right? We just thought like, oh, well, the doctor says it looks fine with me and I don't think she ever tested my AMH. So I didn't get that tested until we were referred on to the reproductive endocrinologist. And Clomid, for people listening, because you hear about Clomid being used for women, helping induce ovulation. So the theory behind using it for men is that the Clomid helps increase testosterone. And we know for men, testosterone is the main hormone responsible to produce sperm. So that's really interesting. And then an IUI for the listeners, intrauterine insemination, who this might be new, something that they haven't heard about, what they do is they get the male to produce a sample and then they they wash the sperm. So they take away, they get the most concentrated, best quality, the best swimmers. And then they, through a catheter, which goes into the uterus, is where they deposit the sample. And they actually put it as high up in the uterus as they can to increase the likelihood of it getting to an egg so that it can fertilize, which... It does bypass, you know, bypasses the vaginal canal, which might be acidic, so sperm might not survive. Like it just, it takes, it takes some of the travel time that sperm <laughs> has to do and just puts yeah. it that much closer. Okay. So now that we've had a little science yeah. lesson on today's episode, let's, um, let's jump into what was next. So you were working with an RE, you were getting tested, your AMH was low. They wanted you yeah. to jump into IVF. Yeah. And so, of course, you know, we were going through all of that stress. And at the exact same time, we were preparing to move states because why not add another thing (laughs) to the plate, right? Like we all do it. And so what we did after that first recommendation of IVF is we set up a consult with a clinic in Minneapolis, Minnesota, which is where I currently live. One, because we knew we were moving and we were going to need to establish care, but two, just to get a second opinion Mm -hmm. of what another provider thought. And they recommended the same thing, 
So we jumped right into our first round of IVF. I This was about, gosh, five years ago now. So I don't remember specifically all of the numbers, but I do remember that we got a, a decent number of eggs that became embryos. We did a five-day transfer of one embryo. So it takes five days after the embryo's been, or, you know, after the egg's been fertilized in the lab. Um, and we did a five-day transfer of one embryo and that round failed. We did not become pregnant and we also had no embryos make it to blast to be able to be frozen. We were basically left with nothing <laughs> after that first round. But emotionally, that must have been completely heartbreaking. Just revving yourself yeah. up to do this and then get that news at the end. Yeah, it was devastating. And I think it, one, not becoming pregnant was devastating, but then not having any of the embryos make it to f to be able to be frozen, to try to do a frozen transfer was even more devastating because I knew I was going to have to go through all of the shots and all of the retrieval and everything all over again. It was incredibly difficult. Mm -hmm. What helped you through that period in terms of some of your coping strategies or, or what did you yeah. do? Yeah, you know, to be honest, so we were living with my parents at the time. One thing that was a huge blessing was I wasn't working because we had just moved. And so really, like, I, I spent a lot of time with my mom hanging out, going, we love to go thrift store shopping for furniture, just seeing family and friends. I'm from the Minneapolis area, so I hadn't seen a lot of people in a long time and just kind of trying to establish what our new life was going to look like. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then the other thing really is we jumped right into a second cycle. So we just were like, okay, let's do it. I mean, literally like I got my period and we started our next cycle right away. So there wasn't much and time to There wasn't really a lot develop. of time. Nope. There wasn't a lot of time. Which is, and, you know, could definitely yeah, be a good thing. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, I think looking back on it, it was the right thing for yeah. us. Mm -hmm. But I think you have to, you have to do what's right for you. Yeah. And for us, it was the right thing, especially because I wasn't working. And yeah. so it was a lot easier, to be honest, to go through all of the appointments and the shots and everything when I wasn't working. I bet there was even just completely letting go, just vegging, just doing everything that you wanted to do, you know eat the chips and chocolate that you're yeah. technically not supposed to eat, but you're totally. just like, I don't care. I'm going to just feel into this and just let my, just yep. do what I, what I want to do. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So then so what yeah. was next? Yeah. So we jumped into the second cycle. They changed up our protocol our medication protocol. Unfortunately, I did not respond to that protocol very well. So on the second retrieval, we got less eggs than we did, or, you know, the first cycle, and the quality of the eggs were not good. We did a day three transfer the second time. And again, it did not result in the pregnancy. And again, we didn't have any embryos to freeze. And I think that moment was kind of this like, oh, wow, like, we thought that this was going to work. We had no reason to believe it wouldn't work and it didn't work. So I think, you know, I was feeling a lot of frustration, yeah. anger, confusion. You know, I didn't know much about IVF or infertility in general until we were in it. And so I guess I just assumed like, well, yeah, IVF is going to work. Why wouldn't it work? Mm -hmm. And it didn't. So 
we had that dreaded appointment with our doctor where you get to go in, but they take you in through a different door because you go into the physician's actual office. And I mean, I can vividly remember this appointment where we're sitting at her in her office. She's behind a giant desk. We're sitting on the other side, just being like, why isn't this working? And she had told us she really thought it was an egg quality issue. And she brought up the idea of using donor eggs. In that moment, I, I just broke down. I was sobbing hysterically. I, I didn't, I had never even heard of donor eggs. I didn't know what they were. All I heard was, you're, you're broken. Mm. Your eggs aren't working. And we're going to have to go find another woman to help you. And that was probably the hardest news I got through this whole process. Like, not to mention, it's, it's probably what a lot of women feel going into it. You know, there's something wrong with me. They're, you're mm-hmm. constantly doing blood tests. You're constantly trying to figure out, no, but where's the problem? You know, like, yes, right. there's a category of unexplained infertility, but women still believe well, there has to be something because otherwise mm-hmm. it would just happen. And then when you're pushed through each phase, similarly to how you were, and then to get to the point of, oh crap, n- now like that belief is just being like further and further like, ingrained in you, which is terrible for your mental health, for your well being overall. What was your process like after, after that appointment? What helped you get through yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. So, You know, I think the one other thing that I remember from that appointment was she said that she thought we would be able to have a child using my own eggs, Mm -hmm. but that it would probably take eight to 10 rounds of fresh IVF. And when I say fresh, I mean eight to 10 rounds of all the stim meds, a retrieval, eight to 10 retrievals, eight to 10 transfers with nothing left to freeze Mm -hmm. to make it happen. And I mean, we left devastated. We left completely defeated. I remember not really being able to, it took me a while to even comprehend what she had said. Because I knew deep in my heart that emotionally I could not go through this process eight to 10 times. Oh my goodness. I was, yeah. I mean, I was already just broken and depressed and I felt like my whole life was on hold Mm -hmm. and I eight to ten rounds just was it it wasn't an option for for me emotionally it wasn't an option but financially it wasn't an option either because we were paying everything out of pocket and so we spent a lot of time just grieving really yeah feeling sorry for ourselves doing a ton of research my husband loves research and we just dove into our friend google and started researching donor eggs third-party reproduction what does that mean we were lucky to get connected to a great therapist here in town who specialized in helping couples who were using third-party to help them build their families and so we just did a lot of research and tried to learn everything Mm -hmm. that we could and a lot of time just talking to each other my husband and I and 
and really talking about what is our ultimate goal? Mm -hmm. What was our ultimate goal through this whole entire process? And it was to have a family. And it was, I really wanted to be pregnant. And Mm -hmm. so for me, it was, donor was really the next, the next step for us. You know, I would say that I was terrified of it. Sounds like it's scary territory. How do you pick? How do you know? So many questions. (laughs) Exactly. And you know, the things that were going through my mind at the time, and I think are really valid questions are, I I didn't know what the long-term impacts of having a donor conceived child would be. Mm. I didn't know anyone who had used a donor. I had heard of sperm donor, but more in like a comedy way, not in like a a classic classic friends episode. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, I was unsure whether or not I would love my child the same way because they wouldn't be genetically connected to me. I was worried that our child wouldn't be accepted in society because they were donor conceived. I was terrified that my child would resent us or be angry that we used a donor. And I was even worried about my family and my friends, people that knew me and loved me, judging us for our decision Mm -hmm. or not accepting our child. That was a lot to process. Tons. Yeah. It's tons to process. Yep. Ultimately, what was the most helpful in choosing which organization you were going to go with or, you know, how to begin that Mm -hmm. process? Yeah. You know, we spent about six months processing it. Yeah. Um, We took a break. We spent about six months thinking, talking, seeking advice, trying to understand everything. And like I mentioned before, ultimately it came down to, we wanted a child. I wanted to experience pregnancy and we didn't feel that adoption was where we were being called at that point. And so again, I think hindsight is 2020. Our clinic offered offers a anonymous donor program and I'll make a comment about anonymous in a minute, but we felt like for us traveling to overseas or to a clinic somewhere else in the United States was an added level of stress that we didn't want to take on. Um, I had just started a new job at this point. And so, you know, trying to not only get time away for appointments to start a cycle, but also to have to travel and stay somewhere like that just wasn't going to work for us. And I really didn't want to see any adult photos of our donor. Um, I was happy to see child photos and like read their profile, Mm -hmm. but I didn't want to see any adult photos or meet our donor. And so that also kind of narrowed down the different options for getting donor eggs for Mm. us. Sounds like Um, there's so many options for couples. Tons. Tons. Yeah. Tons of options. Yep. You have your reasons and why you made those decisions. And I, and I think it listeners hearing who maybe this is what they're experiencing for them. It's like, Oh, I, me personally wouldn't even thought, Oh, seeing baby pictures of your Mm -hmm. donors. Like that is a really smart way of working through the process. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? Everyone has their own preference. I mean, there, and there's so many different ways to, to find a donor. You could use a known donor. I have a friend whose sister was their donor. 
Mm -hmm. um, cousins can be donors, best friends can be donors, right? Some people that's really important to them that they use a known donor. Mm -hmm. For some people, they don't want to know their donor. For us, known donor wasn't really an option because we didn't want to know her donor. And known donor adds another element of you know, legality, legality, talking about it, being open, emotions, right, of using a known donor. But then really, and this probably, this may sound silly, but for me, I didn't want to see an adult photo or meet our donor because I didn't want to walk around my life being like, oh, that person looks familiar. Wait, could they be my donor? Such I a good point. I didn't want that. I yeah. just didn't want that. So, like you know, knowing the universe, they're going to put that person directly exactly. in your path. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, exactly. So, again, I would say we were really lucky. We decided to use donor egg. We were matched with a donor, and we did a fresh transfer of two embryos in November of 2015. And our twin girls were born in the summer of 2016. Do you have any sense of if you implant? implanted two fresh embryos that it would lead to twins? Yes. So we were told that there was a 50% chance that if we put two in, we would get twins. Okay. And, you know, funny story is we were like, we're, we debated back and forth literally until we were on the table for the transfer, <laughs> if we were going to do one or two. And we decided on two and the doctor said, okay, we're going to do one embryo. And I said, nope, two. And she said, so you want twins? And I said, yep. And <laughs> then they did the transfer. And then I don't know about anyone who's had a transfer, but you get to have Valium or some sort of, you know, lovely medication Narcotic, like yeah. that. <laughs> and so I immediately fell asleep after the transfer. And I remember waking up in the recovery room and thinking to myself, oh my gosh, what did we just do? <laughs> <laughs> but I, I cannot imagine our life any other way. They are lovely. And 50-50, right? It could go either way. It's like yep. top, tossing yep. a coin. <laughs> yep. Yep. And just to be totally honest and transparent, that was right in 2015. And now most clinics won't transfer to donor egg embryos. They'll only transfer one. The standard right. is to do one now. I have heard that as well. Yes. Yeah. Third-party reproduction isn't something that is openly talked about. So do you have any insight on how common it is? How many couples use donor egg or sperm during their infertility journey? Yeah. So first I want to clarify, when I talk about third-party or when people talk about third-party reproduction, really there's there's four different kinds mm-hmm. that people can refer to. So donor egg, which is what we did, is one of them. Mm-hmm. And that's where a couple uses another woman's egg, but the partner's sperm. So that'd be, you know, a heterosexual couple using their partner's sperm. Donor sperm is where the couple uses the partner's egg, but donated sperm. Double donor or donor egg, donor sperm, where a couple chooses an egg donor, and then they separately choose a sperm donor and then create embryos using those, those two pieces of donated material. And then the third is donor embryo. That's where a couple uses an embryo that's already been created somehow, but the embryo is not genetically connected to either partner. So I just wanted to clarify that there are, mul- there are many ways to use third party to create your family. I think 
the world, just as a side comment, the world of reproductive medicine and the things that we are able to do and that we're continuing to learn. I think we know so little about this area in terms of like scientific research that it's just going to continue to change mm-hmm. and evolve mm-hmm. um, as we continue to move forward. So yes, oh, I science. think that's fascinating. <laughs> I know. Well, science. But uh, regarding your question around frequency, here's the thing. The data reported is not great. In 2017 is the most recent kind of full data that we have available to us to to look at frequency. And about 9% of all IVF cycles in the U.S. and Canada are using third party. And so the hard part about that number is, at least in the U.S., the data is reported on whether or not someone used their own eggs, donor eggs, or donor embryo. Mm-hmm. But there isn't specific data related to, say, sperm donation. So right. a, someone who used their own eggs, but maybe the eggs were fertilized using a donor sperm, wouldn't necessarily pull out in that data. Again, it's hard to know. So, you know, 9%, like I wouldn't consider that common, but I wouldn't necessarily consider it uncommon too. I think it's happening and people are using third party a lot more than we talk about it mm-hmm. or are open about it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and maybe that you know has to do with even the information available about it. Yeah, I think I think it is, and I think you know, a lot of people go through infertility quietly. They don't yeah. share. They don't talk about it because it's emotional. It's hard. It there's shame in it. There's feelings of that there's something wrong with me. It's intimate, right? Like we're talking about creating a baby, and most people think about sex when when they think about that. And that and makes people uncomfortable. Makes people uncomfortable or awkward, right? So we don't talk about it. And then when you add in that layer of using third party, you add in a whole new element of what's wrong with me am I going to be judged? No one talks about this. I'm weird. Am I weird? Is this awkward? Like, and then we just, we don't talk about it openly Mm -hmm. because we're not comfortable. So. Well, thank you for sharing your story and creating more awareness about, about third-party reproduction. And I'm sure couples listening will reach out to you because they can really resonate and connect, connect with your story. You touched on so many emotions and the mental emotional state of couples through the journey. One thing that jumps out to me a lot is this concept of there's a lot of fear mongering that happens Mm -hmm. in the fertility space. You know, there's around age, women are being told, oh, you're 35, you're too old, or we got to get started on things. Then there's also timelines, and then you feel pressured to make these decisions. Could you comment on if you felt that way when you were in the journey? And if there were times when you were able to recognize it, or were you kind of just going along because you didn't really know what that was, you just thought it was... Mm -hmm what happens? Yeah, you know, I'm really glad you bring this up because I think it's important that we talk about it. And I think fear-mongering or the the criticism that we have for ourselves and and for other people can be really challenging. And so I always try to remind myself and my clients that these messages are really I think coming out of a place of fear and doubt, fear that things aren't going to work because the infertility process is so unknown. No one can guarantee an outcome, right? No one can say, this will work, you will be pregnant. 
right? And so that unknown and that uncertainty is incredibly scary. And then we're in this and we're so vulnerable. You know, we're broken, we're scared, angry, frustrated, feeling alone and isolated. And unfortunately, I think there's people out there who take advantage of that. And you're right, we get judged for our age, we get judged for our lifestyle choices, we get judged and told, you know, we should have done things differently in order to not be in this situation. And I think it's human nature to share our failures and our bad stories and to vent about all the things that don't go right. And then I think we use some of this scary stuff to try to rationalize why when we really don't know why, right? To your earlier point of like, we don't know why this isn't working. It should be, but it's not. I would say I never once felt pressured to make a decision over another decision. And if anyone out there listening is feeling any kind of pressure to make a decision, then I'm going to make the bold statement to say you don't have the right care providers or support people around you. Because these decisions that we are forced into making when we are going through an infertility journey are hard. And they're decisions that we never thought we would have to make, Mm -hmm. right? I don't think any person who's going through infertility and treatments and having to make decisions like, do we genetically test our embryos or don't we? are decisions that we ever think we would have to make. Mm-hmm. And the decisions that we're making are lifelong decisions. These decisions are going to impact the rest of our life and the rest of our children's lives. Mm-hmm. And so I just think that we all deserve the time and the space and the counsel and the support to feel comfortable and confident in our decisions. I describe it as having a toolkit. I had a patient that I had worked with. She was in her second or third IUI and she, she admitted, she's like, I just went right into it. You know, we had been trying for six months and weren't successful. And then we just went right to the fertility clinic when our, you know, first two months there, we were already doing an IUI. And, and she's like, I had no understanding of what to expect. My, my relationship with my husband was up and down because we were just so, you know, we were, we were lost. We didn't know what was going on. We, we had so many feelings come up. And then she says, but then I, something cool happened. I built a toolkit of how to know what I need to know the self-work I need to do, know the positive self-talk, how to remain calm. And she'd ended up taking, it was a good six month break from the clinic. And then it got to a point where she was asking herself, is it time to go back or is it time to find a new clinic? And one of the things that really helped make that decision for her is she's like, this is different. I'm going to go in this time with having a toolkit. I'm going to know how to cope with how I feel. I'm going to know how to ask questions. I'm going to know how to be fully present in that experience. So the fact that you say, you know, build your support team and work with mm-hmm. practitioners and coaches that and counselors that are going to get, empower you, that are going to give you information, and they're going to allow you to thrive in this journey and really make the decisions. The decisions are lifelong, but they need to be decisions that are going to, that you feel good about. There's no right or wrong about them, but you have to feel good about them. Exactly. Yeah. I, I love that. The toolkit. But yes, I mean, I think so many of us, and I was one of them. I mean, I just was like, I don't know what this is about. Like, I want to be pregnant. And I had providers saying like, well, here's your next step. And I feel like 
I was lucky. Those were the right steps for us. Mm -hmm. And I felt comfortable in those next steps. But I think now, even, you know, what, five, four or five years later, there are so many more resources available to women and couples and people who are going through this process. You know, podcasts like yours, coaches, the Instagram community, like Mm -hmm. all these people who have either been through the journey, are professionals, you know, in the area specializing in, in infertility, and the level of empathy that I know I feel because I have been through it and I've lived it. Like, I want women who are going through it now to not ever feel like they weren't supported and that they were just Mm. thrown into something. I want them to feel empowered to have the knowledge Mm -hmm. and to know that there are people out there who care about you as a person and have no ulterior motive except for you to be successful in whatever that success looks like for you. And that's going to be different for everyone Yeah, because everyone's story is different. Such an important point. As someone who's gone through the experience and you talked earlier about some of the myths that Mm -hmm. you, or the beliefs that you thought belief slash myths about using, using donor eggs and about what your child would look like, what people would think, would you love them as much? Can you speak to maybe the truth of some of those myths and beliefs that you had now that you're on the other side of things? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of myths. There's a lot of things that people say specifically around using donor egg. From what I had said before, like I didn't know anyone who had used a donor and I was able to connect with a woman who did use a donor. And that was an incredibly powerful experience. She was just someone who was willing to talk to me. Honestly, I looked at her and I was like, oh my gosh, like you look very normal and your child looks very normal. And I would never look at you and go, oh, you used a donor to conceive your child. And that was incredibly helpful for me. I think there's some other pretty big myths out there, things that I know I was afraid of when I was going through the process, like that egg donors only donate for the money. I mean, Egg donors can make upwards of tens of thousands of dollars, depending on the clinic and the location and how many times they donate. And yes, there are some people who end up donating just because they want money or need the money. But the There's got to be a, a criteria. Oh, in terms for of, sure. Yeah, they're not just taking yeah. anybody's. <laughs> nope, nope. And so that's another thing is that anyone can be an egg donor. And that is just 100% not true. Right. So. Women typically have to be between the ages of 21 and 34. They have to have, you know, a very specific family history of no genetic or psychiatric disorders. They need to be a non-smoker, certain BMI. They undergo multiple screening tests, including a pretty massive psychological exam. Um, A lot of them go through an in-person interview as well. And so like at our clinic, they got about 60 to 70 inquiries a month from women who wanted to be donors and they usually took one or two. Wow. So there's a a major screening process for for people who want to do an egg donor, who want to be an egg donor. And the majority of egg donors do it because they see it as a way to help. 
They Mm -hmm. see it as a way to support maybe someone that they knew who went through infertility and that the compensation really just covers the inconvenience of the treatments. If you've gone through an egg retrieval, you know that the treatments are not convenient, right? So the pay helps with that. But for me, that really helped knowing that there were people out there who really just wanted to help me and my family and that the screening process is very rigorous. Mm -hmm. And I would say, you know, another thing that I've been hearing a lot about recently around donor conceived children is that children get angry with their parents for how they were conceived. And that terrified me. I'll be Mm -hmm. honest. For sure. You don't want your child to be angry at you. But where a lot of these stories are coming from is that these donor conceived kids were never told that they were conceived using a donor. And really the reason why they weren't told is because 20, 30 years ago, when couples were using a donor to get pregnant, they were told not to say anything. The doctors were telling them not to say anything to their kids. They would never know, why would you tell them? And that was just the general practice back then. And so then these kids found out because, and like I had mentioned earlier, I was going to make a comment about anonymous donation. We have these great sites now like Ancestry.com and 23andMe where you just have to swipe your cheek and send it in to this website and you can find all this genetic information about them, about yourself. And so these kids did that because it's fun or their friends were doing it. And then surprise, like there's this big piece of information that you didn't know. But today, the recommendation, and this is what I fully believe in, is full transparency with our children about how they're conceived. And that the transparency literally starts at birth. So you start talking about it. It's never a secret. And then it becomes something that our children have always known. There was never this like, before I knew I was donor conceived and after I knew I was donor conceived. It's like, This is just how I've always known. How did they process it? Like, what do they make of it? How do they interpret? Yeah. So, you know, research shows or, you know, doctors say that kids around the age of four is when they start to understand, like, babies are in mommy's tummies. You need a mommy and a daddy to make a baby. And so, to be honest, you know, my kids are three and a half now. And since we started reading them books... Um, at the age of six months, um, Mm -hmm. we have been reading them children's books about being donor conceived. And they, they're part of their stories that we read. And the, there's some amazing books out there. One that I love is called Happy Together. And Julie Marie writes this amazing book. It's simple. It's easy to understand. My three-year-olds love it. And it just talks about how mom and dad fell in love. They got married. They wanted to start a family. They were having trouble. They went to a doctor. Mommy's eggs weren't working right, but the doctor told them about a very kind and generous lady who's a donor. And so this donor helped us by giving her her eggs so that mom and dad could have a baby. And that baby is them. And truly my children, they just, it's part of their rhetoric. It's part of what they know. And they take it in like they take in any other book, right? Like, oh, that's a fun book. Now I want to read the Mickey Mouse book, (laughs) right? Like for them, it's not a big deal. Yeah. And there's so many stigmatizes it, right? It makes it just normal. Mm-hmm. It makes it totally normal. And they will pick the book just like they'll pick any other book. Mm-hmm. And there's now just so many amazing books out there for people 
who have donor conceived kids where you can start talking about it from the very beginning. And there's books about, yeah, about donor sperm, donor egg, you know, two dads and and surrogacy, like all the different types of ways that you can build your family. There are children's books about it. And I highly recommend anyone who is considering using a donor or has a donor conceived child or is pregnant right now with a donor conceived child, like get one or two of these children's books and just start reading them mm-hmm. because it makes building that dialogue and how to talk about it with your child. It just gives, it basically gives you a script mm-hmm. for how to do it. Um, and then I, I imagine when your girls get over, you know, over the age of four and maybe mm-hmm. a little bit older, it will be, they'll feel special because like their story is like the story in the book that they love so much and the characters that they love so much. So it helped give them, it makes them not feel alone. Like they're the only ones and, right. or that they were, they didn't know about it or yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love that there's a children's book for anything, any totally. topic you want to talk about with your kids. <laughs> like there's gotta be a book on it. There is, there's gotta be a book. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, the other thing, and this is for our personal story, but my dad passed away six months after the girls were born. It was very sudden and he was young and we ended up donating pretty much every organ we could donate because that was his wish. He wanted to be able to be an organ donor. And so we weave that into our donor story too, that Mm -hmm. a special lady helped us create you two And Pops helped other people using parts of his body to help other people. My father-in-law, he had cancer and he ended up having a stem cell transplant. And so we talk about his donor. And so for them, we've woven this story of donation and helping other people with the things that we have into part of our family history and who they are. And I, again, I just think it's so important because for them, it's just part of who they are. Yeah. Um, what so, an ultimate lesson in, in gratitude for yeah. your kids to learn at a young age. Wow. Yeah. As a, as yeah. a philosophy for a family and, you know, the world we live in and kids and technology and being receiving everything right away, that instant mm-hmm. gratification piece. I think this this takes it above that and makes it about something bigger. And it's going to create these like beautiful, like super generous, sweet, loving children <laughs> who are going right. to, you know, as they grow and become teenagers and adults and have their own family, like this is going to just be woven, as you said, into like your family story. It's so beautiful. Yeah. So Thank beautiful. You. Yep. Yeah. And I, you know, I think I just want to say like, we don't get to control how our kids take this information, right? Mm-hmm. If my kids are frustrated or angry about it in the future, we'll work through that. But I think the the main point is on open and honest communication from the very beginning. And when you do that, you are building those pathways of communication about everything. They do become frustrated or they, they want to know more about their donor in the future. Like we want to support them and help them do that as a family. I think just holding space for them and allowing them in their, wherever they are in their journey and their processing, the fact that you've opened up that communication, they will feel comfortable coming to you and saying like, this is how we're feeling, you know, instead of like feeling guilty or shameful that 
exactly. that they feel angry or that they're disappointed, mm-hmm. right? Exactly. Yeah. So in our pre-chat, you spoke about how you want women and couples to know that there's like lots of scary stories out there about third-party reproduction, but that doesn't have to be your story. I love that because it applies to all aspects of the fertility journey. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are lots of statistics and facts and the likelihoods and interventions working, yada, yada, yada. Can you share more (laughs) about how couples can rewrite perhaps those scripts and dialogues that they're running in their heads about the likelihood of a successful outcome? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, infertility is so hard because we get so accustomed to hearing bad news, right? And really, until we get the positive pregnancy test, or honestly, until we have that healthy child in our arms, we're so used to getting bad news, right? You can't get pregnant on your own. This cycle failed. Another month goes by. And I know it can be so incredibly difficult to push forward and to have, have a positive attitude or to, to believe that this is going to happen for you. And so really, for me, it's four things that come to my mind when I think about you know, that dialogue and trying to shift it from failure to success. So the first one is just to acknowledge that it's challenging and hard, right? Like name it. I think we can try to stuff down our feelings or say that it's not as hard as it actually is. But when we acknowledge it and we name it and we say it, we, I think, allow our feelings space to be felt and then to move on. And so one thing that I love to do, and I do this for all areas of my life, not just infertility, but when I'm really struggling with something or something's feeling really hard, I will sit down with some pieces of paper and I will write out what my feeling is on the paper and one feeling or one thought on each piece. And then I'll look at it and I'll say it out loud, right? So I'll say like, I am angry that this is not working for me. And then I'll take that feeling and I'll put it in a bag or a box just as a symbol of like, okay, I've acknowledged you and I have felt you, but I'm not going to let you continue to control me or live in me. Mm -hmm. And I just, it's such a great tangible way, I think, of allowing us that space to feel, but then to move forward. Mm -hmm. It reminds me a little bit about surrendering, the process of surrendering and then like what is helpful in that process is taking that paper and even burning it because you're watching that thought like disappear and like be let go from your existence, yeah. right? Or from your brain. Yes, yes exactly. Mm-hmm. And then to counteract that, I think the second thing for me is practicing gratitude. Yes. And, you know, I'm going to be totally honest. I originally really struggled with this. I really was like, you know what? Like, that's great for all these other people. But I don't really need to focus on gratitude. I'm good at seeing the silver lining of things and whatever. But I was encouraged by a a great teacher of mine to really try to be intentional about gratitude. And I will be honest, it's changed my life. And so being able to not only acknowledge your difficult feelings or things that are hard, but also to acknowledge the things that are going well. Or that you are grateful for because there are, oh, it's both, right? Like there are things that you can be grateful for while you're struggling. And sometimes those things can be that my coffee is hot, right? Like it doesn't have to be major, but the more we practice focusing on one or two things a day that we're grateful for, the more our brain 
rewires to focus on the things that that are positive and that we're grateful for. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that helps to shift our mindset as well. The brain is powerful. The brain is, it's a powerful thing. And then the third thing is really having that lines, those lines of communication open with your partner. So when you're both going through infertility, because you both are going through it, to me, it's usually one of the first really difficult things that a couple has to go through. Up until then, it's probably all been like happiness and bliss. And that's not always the case, but this tends to be one of the first things that is challenging. And then on top of that, it's not just one person who's struggling, you're both struggling. And so it makes it harder to be there for each other when you're both struggling. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that my husband and I do, and we still do it to this day with our kids, so it's a great practice to put into place for your family in general, is we share highlights and lowlights when we're having a meal together. Mm -hmm. Sounds so simple, but really it goes back to numbers one and two of acknowledging things that are hard and practicing gratitude. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that it does is it opens up the communication to say like, hey, you know, today was really hard. I just, I I couldn't concentrate at work. I feel like I got, you know, I let this person down and then you can open up that, that dialogue with each other. Something about that point that, that came up, it's it's when you practice gratitude, you're allowing yourself to be able to see the grateful moments in your life instead of if you were not practicing gratitude and maybe you're someone who was easily, you know, wasn't processing some of the negative or some of the low lights, then that's all you would see when you walked about your day. So mm-hmm. it, almost, it helps like retrain your brain to be able to look for and seek out more positive and moments that just make you joyful and give you this warm feeling of pure gratitude. So I love right. that. Right. And when you know you're going to have to report out on your highlights and lowlights, it also helps you look <laughs> look for something so you have something to say. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. And then really the fourth thing, and we've talked about this already, but I really, it's building your team of support around you. And so it's those trusted care providers, mental health professionals, coach, you know, people who can help you see what you're not able to see. Mm-hmm. Because when we're in the midst of it, we can't see all of the things that are happening and, and we can't, especially some of the things that we get to learn. And so having those people around us who can help us see things from a different perspective, I think makes all the difference. Mm-hmm. Because really, each failed cycle provides more information to help us move forward. But it's when true. we're in that failure, we can't see it. And so having people that you can share with or that can help you and not people who are just giving you a false sense of hope, but people who are really willing to share the truth and help you see the truth, I think they just make your journey easier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For me, it was just someone saying like, this is shitty. Yeah. You know, like this day one of your period. Yes. Let's, let's, let's feel everything we're feeling. Cause it's not about not acknowledging right to your first point. You said, you know, acknowledge the feeling and recognize that it's there and then, and then learn how to, for me, I would give myself the one, one day I would say, okay, I can feel not great on day one when my period comes, but then day two, I'm going to start picking myself up and we're going to start to think about what's, what's positive. Like what are things that I have to be grateful for? 
And I, I, I spoke about this on my, when I shared my personal story in another episode, and I'll link that for listeners if you haven't heard that, but finding moments of gratitude within the struggle really helped me get through it and, and be like, you know, this led me to this experience or my baby was communicating with me so that I could make this so I can do this in my career. These are just some examples of like how finding gratitude was essential in the middle of like the struggle. So mm-hmm. I love that you highlighted and like touched on that. So what are your top three pieces of advice for couples that they can use together no matter what stage of their fertility mm-hmm. journey they're at? Yeah. So I think number one is getting solid on your goals. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is what do you ultimately want from as an outcome of this infertility journey? I think it's easy to say, well, I want to have a baby, right? Well, I want to be pregnant. Well, okay, like that's great. And those are great goals. And those were our goals, right? But I think it's important to have those conversations with your partner because your partner may not share those same goals or they may look different than yours. And so getting solid on what that means for you as a couple will help you be more informed when you are facing decisions of what's our next step. Yeah. Do I feel comfortable with this? Do I want to pursue a second opinion? Right? Like helping you answer some of those questions and feeling empowered to answer those questions for yourself and for your family. You you circle back to those goals. So I think that's really important. Number two, I think we've already talked about it is build that support team around you that you are comfortable and confident with. There are so many resources and people out there. Doesn't just have to be your one RE or the one mental health therapist, right? You can make choices and there's coaches like me and people who can support you. Even recognizing that you and your partner may be at a, at different stages within exactly. your individual journey. So you may, yeah. you may benefit from different type of counseling, different type of therapy, yep. a different goes back to, yes, you're working as a unit and together you need to be strong. But in, if you're both separately, individually, really strong and solid, you'll just create an even more foundational unit as a whole, which, you know, that's pre-parenting, right? Yeah, exactly. Because you're going to be tested. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And then I think the third piece of advice that I have or just thing that I want people to know is this time is not going to last forever. Hmm. And it feels like it will because there isn't a light at the end of the tunnel. And it can be incredibly hard. You have to, to just have the faith that this time will end. And whether it ends with a baby or it ends living child-free, it will end. Yeah. And there's a lot of life to live after. And so continue to live your life in the midst because there is life after mm-hmm. too. So often couple, couples will put life on hold, you know, like yeah. not go on the vacations, not, not, change, not change anything, you know, in their career, like, yep. you know, renovate their house, like such simple things. But then I have heard, I didn't understand this because, you know, after you have your baby, like everything should be great. But, but I have had people, couples say to me, I wish that we didn't put our life on hold mm-hmm. and we didn't, you know, that we 
we worked on our house or like we looked at the forever or we just did things that made us feel like we were moving forward because we feel like because of our fertility journey we were we're taking like steps back which you know still like confuses me but i i think the lesson in all of that is just be in the now be in the present and not put your life on hold still find joy and do the things that make you happy i i 100% agree with that you know we took trips we did the things that we wanted to do. And I, I'm not saying it was easy to do those things because it wasn't. It was incredibly hard. Because you probably felt guilt and shame around I like, felt, no, I can't yeah. be away if something. Yeah, well, I felt guilty. I was like, do we even have the money for this? Like, you know, yeah. but continuing to do the things that brought me joy and that brought us joy as a couple just strengthened our relationship in the midst of the infertility but also now I look back and think oh my gosh we could never do (laughs) those things because we have this new life that we're incredibly grateful for yeah but we couldn't take those trips that we took for another probably 25 years and that's the way it is so just continuing to live your life is I think so important yeah um, in this in this journey Beautiful. Can you share more about how you work with fertility couples and what that might look like for those listening who want to know more from you? Yeah, I'm a fertility coach and I help family focused, responsible and relationship driven women and couples facing infertility and using third party reproduction or trying to decide if that's the next step for them so that they can make thoughtful, confident and informed decisions about how to best build their family without anxiety, fear, misinformation, judgment, rejection, or worry about Mm -hmm. how their choices will impact their future child and family. And so I do that through one-on-one coaching with my clients. I would love to connect with anyone who would like to connect. I can be found on Instagram at mg underscore infertility underscore support or on my website www.meta.getman g-e-t-m-a-n.com wonderful and we'll link all those below awesome awesome and then i um just for your listeners i put together a freebie that anyone is welcome to grab if you're considering using donor you want to know more about using donor i put together a great freebie um, called considerations when choosing a donor it's the top questions that i asked myself and that i think people should ask themselves and their partners when considering or choosing to use a donor. So I'm sure there'll be a link to that too. Go on and grab that. Excellent. I think that's going to be so useful for anyone in this journey who's considering that. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, Maida, thank you so much for this interview today. It was so insightful. I learned so much about even how to communicate. I love the bit that we, where we talked about communicating with your children right from the beginning about what this journey looks like. So thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us today and for being on the show. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Hormone Heartbeat Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe so you can be notified of all future episodes. And don't forget to check out the show notes for all guest details and your free downloadable goodies. Your feedback is important to me, so please, please leave a review so women can find and be empowered by this knowledge. If you have a topic you'd like to see discussed on the show 
or have a recommendation for guests you'd like to see interviewed, please get in touch by emailing the Hormone Heartbeat Podcast at gmail.com. Mm-hmm.